going to pick up where we left off last week. As I, as I discussed last, uh, last week to open up our Wednesday night service, we talked about how this isn't typical of my preaching style. Typically, I don't uh, expository preach or go line for line through the scripture, but I really felt uh, called by God for this season and this time for us as a church to dig into to certain parts of the word and go line for line. Uh, the first one that the Lord led me to was the epistles of John. So first, second, and third John, we're going to go through line by line uh, over, the, over the coming weeks. So last week we talked about first John chapters one and two, uh, this week, we're going to be spending all of our time in chapter three. Uh, and then next week, uh, Dr. Tim Hines is going to be bringing the word on next Wednesday night. And it's a it's a special word the Lord laid on his heart for the church, for the nation at this time. So I'd like to ask you not only to come and be a part of it, but if you don't see somebody here that you see here on Sunday, uh, corner them in a corner on Sunday, back them up and, and they go, hey. How come you weren't here Wednesday night? You know, no, don't be mean. Just just invite somebody. Grab somebody that you don't see here on Wednesday nights normally and say, hey, you should really come out Wednesday night. There's a special word being delivered and really think it would benefit you to come out and hear it. Uh, and also, uh, we're not only inviting Sunday morning people to Wednesday night service, but we're also going to invite our friends and neighbors. Amen. Let's, uh, let's, let's always uh, be evangelizing our friends and neighbors, people we run out to, and and make sure that we are always inviting people to church. Amen? Amen. So let's, let's do that. Uh, so we're digging into John in, in 1 John. And, and part of the study that you see that we talked about last week is John was the youngest disciple. Right. He was he went from being the youngest disciple and, and he was the, uh, obviously the, the best friend uh, of Jesus. You know, he was in the in the three Jesus is three. But uh, there were three. But then there was John and there was something unique about John's relationship with Jesus. You often uh, see John even as a as a young man traveling with Jesus. You see uh, the word pictures in the in the Bible of him just laying his head on Jesus's chest. You know, how many of you know you have to be pretty close uh, in order to lay your head on somebody's chest and be comfortable in that moment doing that. He knew who Jesus was, amen? He knew the character of Jesus. He knew Jesus was the Son of God, and he was getting every everything that he could in the time that he had with him, and that was John. And then you find John, uh, the last disciple that was not martyred. Right? They tried to martyr John on several occasions, but John was not martyred. He, he did not die like the other disciples died. Uh, so later in life, he's the last living disciple, and he's writing these epistles to the churches during this time when he's in his 80s or 90s, it's estimated. So, so John has, has transformed a bit. Amen? How many of you know from your uh, teens to your 20s, you're a bit different, think a bit differently, feel a bit differently than you do when you're in your 80s or 90s, right? Amen? Now, I'm not quite there yet, but some of y'all are, and some of you know that the way you thought at 20 may be different than the way you think at 80, because you've seen some stuff, amen? You've been through some stuff. Right. So so when you've been through some stuff or you see some stuff, you have different perspectives. So John is coming and teaching the church with a, a bit of a different perspective in first John. He begins to teach as a father. Right. And, and really, he's almost teaching as a grandfather. 
But he's beginning to teach to the church with the tone of a father teaching his kids. Right. So as he writes this letter, I want you to understand he's coming from the perspective of a father writing to his kids. Now, I, I think that's a, that's absolutely awesome. But how many of you know that for John, uh, in order to him, for him to write this, uh, he had to know the heart of the father. He had to know the heart of the father in heaven in order to be able to have a fatherly heart for the church that he was writing a letter to. Amen. So, so we find out uh, in this area that John is teaching as a father. So last week, uh, just to kind of wrap up what we dealt with in first and second uh, chapter of First John, we talked about three tests of following Christ, and we laid it out. Uh, those tests were, how many of you remember? All right, there we go. So, so the test of obedience is the first one. Uh, the test of belief is the second one, and the test of love is the third one. So that's the, that's the key points to chapters 1 and 2, that as Christians, uh, there's a test of what makes a Christian and what doesn't. Uh, I gave you a little bit of history that John, in the first part of this, uh, of this epistle, if not all of it, is directing most of his aim at Gnosticism, which was something that was happening in society at the time, which was a, a false uh, sect of Christianity. So Gnosticism said that uh, you didn't need the death of, of Jesus to be saved, but you could be elevated by mental knowledge and thinking. So the more knowledge and education and higher plane of thinking that you got is what saved you, is what Gnosticism began to teach in this time. So John was correcting the theology. And, and how many of you know we talked about uh, different forms, although Gnosticism in, its, in, its, in name is not something that we see in society today, but in action it definitely is something that we see in society today. Amen? Uh, uh, Brian Norman uh, teaches comparative religions, and he's taught it in, in colleges, and he's taught it in churches, and he talks about the danger of, of, of dangerous religions in society, and he's, he's highly knowledgeable on those subjects, and, and a lot of religions that we see in society teach salvation through a higher plane of living. Uh, part of that is the, the Tom Cruise uh, religion. Right, the Church of Scientology uh, teaches that they that you get uh, salvation or you can become a god through higher planes of living. And then last week we kind of dove into two Christian sects. Who, if you ask them, uh, "Are you a Christian?" they'll say, "Yes, I absolutely am." And then you start diving into what they believe, and you understand, "Oh no, I'm I'm not talking to a Christian. I'm talking to something completely different." Right? And those were the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons. Uh, very nice people. Not Christians. Very sincere people. Not Christians. So we need to know that and understand that as Christians. When we face different parts of, of society and different groups that we come into contact to. How many of you know just because they're nice doesn't mean they're saved? Amen. There's some people who are way nicer than me who are going to hell. Right? Because they're not saved. Because we know that the only thing that saves us is faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledging and, and understanding that we need that he died on a cross for our sins so that we could accept him, right? And if we accepted what Jesus Christ did for us and we proclaim his name as Lord, then we call upon him, we are saved, right? Well, you say, well, the the we talked about last week how the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus. And they do, but they believe in a different Jesus. Right? They teach a different Christ. So that's something we've got to understand. There's people who proclaim the name of Christ, but they're serving a different Christ. 
it's a whole different uh, understanding of who Jesus is. And it's not Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary as a virgin, uh, who is the Son of God, ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, by whom is our high priest. It, it's not him. It's somebody different. Right? The Muslims uh, have Jesus in their, in their teachings and literature. But they just teach that he's a good man. Right? So because they believe that Jesus existed, does that make them Christians? No. Right? So it's something that we've got to understand. Now, we got even a little tighter in our faith last week when I talked about the uh, member of, of, the, of, of Congress who opened in prayer. And he's a Methodist pastor. A Methodist pastor opened in prayer. We laughed a little bit about the amen, a woman thing. Uh, but the truth is he, he opened in prayer on national TV as a Methodist pastor and prayed and finished his prayer in the name of Brahma, which is a Hindu god. Right? So, so everybody got way off track on, on focusing on the amen and a woman thing, and he laughed it off, said, oh, that was just a joke. You know, I was just making a, a pun. It was a pun. It was a joke. That's all it was, and kind of laughed it off. Everybody seemed to miss that a Methodist pastor prayed in the name of Brahma, a Hindu god. How, how messed up is that? Right. And I asked you the statement yesterday, based on the fruit and based on what we're learning in first John, is that Methodist pastor a Christian? No. I think we can we can firmly say no. Based on first John, he's not because he's praying to a different God. He's praying to a different religion, praying to a different name. How many of you know you can't mix Hinduism and Christianity and serve the same Christ? You can't mix it. Right? You either serve Christ or, or, or none, right? Because he's, he's the only one. So uh, we, we've kind of moved into that. And then I didn't spend a lot of time on the test of love last week just because we ran so far out of time. Uh, but we're going to be, don't worry, John always comes back around to love. So if you've ever read you know, the Gospel of John, you, re you read the epistles of John, you always know that John always circles back around to love. So we're going to be spending some more time on love throughout this epistle. But the third one was the test of love, which is how do we treat and feel about our brothers and sisters in Christ and how do we feel about people in general, right? Do we love? That's a test of our Christianity. So as we dive into the, to the third chapter of 1 John, uh, if you're there, go ahead and say amen. If you need a second. Yell, yell something out? Something appropriate? No? Okay. So we're good. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Notice the, the capital H's there for those of you who are 
maybe new to studying the word and it may sound a little confusing to you because there's a lot of he's and, and but if you notice the capitalization when there's a capital H there he's referring to Jesus so I just want to clarify that if you're new to, to studying in this area so little children let no one deceive you he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he capital H Jesus is righteous he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned, not the he, by the way, at the beginning of a sentence. Just so you know, that's basic grammar. So he was, just didn't want you to think, oh, he just said Jesus was of the devil. What? No. Um, just want to clarify that. So, so he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So John starts off in chapter 3 bringing a perspective to what he's been teaching. And he's focusing in two different areas here that we see throughout what we've already read and what we're going to read. And the two uh, types of people that he's talking about is the children of God and the children of the devil. All right. So he's talking about the children of God and the children of the devil. Now, obviously, uh, the devil is not a creator, so he's talking about not necessarily the devil's creation uh, of, of people, but he's talking about those who belong to the devil and calling them children of the devil. Uh, now, it's hard for us in the niceness of Christianity uh, to determine and believe that maybe some people are not children of God. Right? It's hard for us in the structure to maybe think about that. And maybe that's in our times of our modern teaching in the church that God loves everybody and he does. Uh, but we've got to understand that not everybody loves him. Not everybody has accepted God as, as the Lord of their life. And if they have not accepted him and they don't live like him and they don't live for him and they live to commit sins which are against his laws, they're not living for him, they're living for the devil. Right. So we've got to understand there is a difference in people who serve Christ and are Christians and people who even call themselves Christians in name, but don't serve Christ. So does that mean that those people are lost and they are the devils and they're bound for hell? They are bound for hell and they are lost, but they have the opportunity to turn around at any point in time and accept Christ and become children of God. Right. So we've got to understand he's talking about a difference here of the children of God and the children of the devil. But first for, and foremost, what I want to focus on is the children of God. And I think that probably looking around the room, everybody in this room would, would be considered a child of God. That you do your best to serve him and serve him well. Uh, you do your best to be a child of God. So how incredible is it that the God of the universe calls us his children? How incredible is that? That's absolutely amazing. Do you know that us, uh, we've been adopted into his family. Romans 8.15 says we, we have come in by the spirit of adoption. When we call him, uh, we cry out, Abba, Father. Right? That we have been adopted in, in, into his family. And the Bible even says we've been grafted into the vine. Right? We've been grafted in and adopted. How many of you know that if, uh, if somebody in this room were to adopt a child, that child would get their last name? Right. If, if Jessica and I were to adopt a child and and Lord knows, I, I don't think uh, we're, we're called to that. But if, if, if the Lord ever laid that on our heart, right, if the Lord ever laid it on our heart and we adopted a child at the end of that adoption process, that child would now have my last name. 
right? That child will be a miller. Uh, the Normans, Brian Norman has adopted children in his family. And they don't have his blood running through them. And, and they've come from different parts of the world. They don't exactly look uh, uh, like him. But they have his last name, right? They have his last name. They are Normans. He has adopted children. How many of you know that the last name that we received by being adopted into the church of Christ is Christian? Amen. So as his adopted children, we are now known as Christians, right? We are now known as Christians because we follow him. So John has been teaching on the separation between those who follow Christ and those who don't. And those who claim to be Christian and those who are actually are following Christ. Uh, how many of you know that God doesn't have any grandchildren? There's no, no way, nothing described in the Bible about, about God's grandchildren. You're either his kid or you aren't. Right? That's it. You're either his kid or you aren't. We're not saved because mom and dad are saved. Uh, that's why we have Redemption Kids, and that's why our, our kids go into Redemption Kids, and, and our children's uh, church leaders uh, will give altar calls in there and give them an opportunity for salvation. And, and last year, I think we had about 14 or 15 kids saved in Redemption Kids, right? They're not saved because mom and dad are worshipers and children of God. They're saved because they make a decision. To worship God, right? We're not Christ followers. How many of you know we're not Christ followers because grandma was, right? If I could live on my grandma Bradshaw's coattails, my grandma Bradshaw, every time I went over to, to her house, I had my grandma Peggy, and then I had my great-grandma Bradshaw. And my great-grandma Bradshaw was, was in her 80s when I was a child, and I would go to her house, and, and she had jet black hair, jet black hair in her 80s, did not dye it. Right. And she would sit every time I saw her. I never, ever saw her out of her recliner. I don't know if she ever got out of that recliner, but but as a kid, like that's all I ever saw was Grandma Bradshaw sitting in that recliner. And in that recliner, Grandma Bradshaw always had an extra large print edition of the Bible in her lap. King James Version. Right. Sitting in her lap, extra large print like this thick. You know, had like eight words a page, you know, you know, it was, it was just this big old Bible, but, but Grandma Bradshaw was known for her prayer life. She was known for reading the Word of God constantly. She didn't watch much TV. She didn't read much of anything else. She studied the Word of God each and every day. And if I could have been a Christian because Grandma Bradshaw was a Christian, if that was the way that it worked, then I certainly would have been saved. But that's not the way that it works, right? We each have to have our own relationship with the Lord. We each have to come to a saving knowledge and grace of who Jesus is, and we each have to walk out our own salvation with fear and trembling, right? So the, so the scripture says that. So we need to understand that we're not just Christ followers because of our lineage. We're Christ followers because we made a decision to follow Christ, which makes us children of God. So John continues to say that those in the world who don't understand God won't understand us either, right? That's what he says. How many of you sometimes get baffled? Uh, that the world just doesn't understand as clearly the, 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 the idea of sin and righteousness that we understand. How many of you get absolutely baffled when you talk to somebody who, and you say, well, this is clearly a sin and clearly in the Bible, and they just can't grasp or understand what you're talking about. 
That's what John says, that the world doesn't know because the world didn't know him. It's not going to understand you, right? So we've got to understand in our, in our society, I, I said this earlier, but as the church, we are countercultural. We're called to be countercultural. We're called to be an alternative to the world. We're called to be an alternative to society, not look like society. That means when society is divided, the church is united. When society is fighting, the church is praying. When society is kicking people out and canceling culture and cancel culturing people, uh, however you might say that, canceling people uh, in general, the church is accepting and receiving people and leading them in truth and righteousness. All right? So as a church, we're called to be countercultural, not the same as the, what it looks like in the world. Because how many of you know if the only difference between you and your unsaved neighbor is your car is missing on Sunday morning for a few hours? then there's not enough difference for them to give their life to Christ. We've got to understand that just because we attend church doesn't mean that we're living counterculturally. But John is talking about everything in this epistle. He's talking about living counterculturally to what the world says is acceptable and right and moral. And we say what's in the Bible is acceptable and right and moral. What God says is moral is moral, not what the world says is moral. Right? When the world is chasing their heart or chasing their emotions, we're chasing the word of God. We're doing what, what he asks of us, right? So it shouldn't be a shock when our belief system is opposed by, oh, let's say, government. I just don't understand. We shouldn't be a shock. We're countercultural. It shouldn't be a shock when our belief system is opposed by neighbors. It shouldn't be a shock when our belief system is opposed by coworkers. It shouldn't be a shock when our belief system is opposed by people we run into in the world who are not saved and have no knowledge of who God is. But yet sometimes we as Christians, and I think it probably happened in the 1950s maybe, but at, at somewhere along the way, the church started expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. And without evangelism and true preaching and teaching and, and discipleship and guiding people through life change, we just, accept, we just expected people who were not saved to act like they were. And then we start getting mad when society acts differently than we act. But how many of you know we can't get mad when the world acts like the world? You can get mad when a Christ follower acts like the world, Right? Matter of fact, that's the only time the Bible gives us, uh, gives us the uh, permission to judge is when a fellow brother or sister in Christ is sinning and acting like the world. It says, or when there's a false prophet or a false teacher or a false, false pastor, right? It gives us the opportunity and the right to judge that and talk about that and look at that, right? It gives us, it says you'll know them by their fruit, right? So those are the only times. It never says that we're to judge unbelievers. That's not our job. That's Jesus' job. Because at some point in time, Jesus is going to sit on the white throne of judgment and everybody, whether they served Christ or not, will go before him. Right? So, so God uh, laid it, God the Father put it in Jesus' hands, Jesus' job description, uh, to, to do the judging. Right? And to judge the world. So we've got to understand that. As countercultural, we're called to not look like the world, but don't get mad when the world don't look like us. Just continue to push. Continue to pray until something happens. Continue to seek his face. Continue to preach. Continue to teach. Continue uh, to evangelize. Continue to reach people. Continue to invite people into, into the kingdom. 
continue to try to lead people to Christ because that's what we're called to do, right? So Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, good. No, he didn't, he didn't say good, right? But he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it first hated me, right? So guess what? We're in good company. When the world attacks Christianity, we're in, we're in good company. So the world typically hates what it doesn't understand. Sin is not a universally understood uh, issue. Sin is not universally understood by the world. And if you talk to enough people who have not had any, uh, any kind of inclination of what the church believes or has not had any time in the Word of God or any time sitting in church listening to preaching, and if you talk to people who don't, and my wife does it on a regular basis as her, as her ministry, Right. Talks to people who, who don't have any knowledge of what the Bible says. And do you know that people who don't have any knowledge of what the word says don't understand what is sin and what is not? They don't know. They don't know the difference. Right. So so we've got to understand that we've got to know the difference as the church. But we don't expect the world to act like the church. We act like the church and we expect the world to come to us to receive salvation and be changed. Right. To receive salvation through Christ. So so. How many of you know that when you, you don't typically, how many of you have had a rebellious kid? And you don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand, right? But I, I have. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll raise my hand. Y'all don't have to, right? Uh, you have a rebellious kid. Typically, when you have a rebellious child, it's because something uh, is wrong in the relationship. There's something wrong in the relationship between you and the child. Right. And a lot of times we we uh, we as parents don't want to admit that <laughs> we say 100 percent child's fault. That's it. Right. But a lot of times we play a role in it when we have a rebellious child. And it doesn't mean it's your fault. Doesn't mean it's all your fault. But it understands that there's something that we can do uh, that plays a, that played a role in that child being rebellious. But many times when we see rebellion in children it's because of a lack of relationship. So when we see rebellion in the world and people who are not living by God's laws, we've got to understand that that signifies there's a lack of relationship between them and the Father. There's a lack of relationship. And every time there's rebellion, uh, you can pretty much understand there's no relationship. So even when we see people that call themselves Christians or people that run for government offices on the basis that, hey, I have a faith, I'm a Christian. But the fruit doesn't line up with the word of God and, and there's constant uh, sin in their actions and the things they vote for and the things they support. Uh, it leads you to the determination that if there's rebellion against the laws of God in the gospel, then there's no relationship there between them and the father. Right. We've got to understand that. So but with relationship, how many of you know we have receptiveness? So when we come into relationship with God, we have receptiveness to what his rules and laws are. When we come into, into relationship with God, we have more receptiveness when God says, hey, uh, listen, I don't want you to sleep around anymore. And you understand, uh, because I'm in relationship with the Father, I'm not going to uh, commit sexual sin any longer because, one, it's a sin uh, against our Father. Two, it's a sin against my own body, according to Scripture. And three, because I love him so much, I want to please him, and I want to do what's right. And then because I know that he loves me so much, he's asking me to do this for my own good. So, so that's not just sexual sin, but that's all sin. As we, as we follow the laws of the word, we're more receptive uh, to God's law and we're more receptive to God's commandments. We're more receptive to what God wants to do in our life when we're in deeper relationship with him. 
And if you find yourself being rebellious against some of God's word or God's law, you need to kind of dive into that portion of your life and see if you've given God access to it or not. Because if you've kept God out of an area of your life, you may find yourself dealing with rebellion in that area. Right. So it's all about uh, receptiveness when we're in relationship and rebellion when we're not. So John continues in verse three, saying that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. So everyone who has this hope in Christ purifies themselves as Christ is pure. So let's take a, a look at this word hope for a moment. So the Greek word elpis, which is, which is where this word comes from, is a confident expectation based on certainty, but specifically in reference to Jesus' return. It's not just a hope in some random thing. And it's not just a hope in, oh, life will get better. It's not just a hope in, oh, I'm going to hit the lottery. It's not just a hope in, oh, I'm going to play that mega millions or whatever it is right now I keep hearing about. It's not a hope in something that, that doesn't last. It's not a hope in something that's just of this world. But it's a hope and understanding that no matter what happens in this world and no matter what we walk through and what we go through, we still have a hope because Christ will return. Amen. Our hope is in Jesus Christ in that moment. How many of you know that hope is an extension of your faith, not inferior to your faith? When you say, I have a hope, uh, it doesn't mean that it's, it's inferior to your faith. Like, if you have faith, you, you know, right? If you have faith, you know, Brian. If you have faith, you know. No, hope's not inferior to our faith. It's an extension of our faith. But this specific use of the word hope is not for anything else other than understanding that Christ is coming back, that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to split the sky wide open, and he's going to bring peace and unity, and he's going to reign for a thousand years, right? And, and when Christ comes back, he's coming back to take over. Amen. I've heard it say a few times from a few pastors this week, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. Right. Christ is coming back to take over. That's where our hope lies. So because of this hope, then it says that we remain pure because he is pure. First Peter 1.16 says we are holy because he is holy. Right? How many of you have ever got caught doing something wrong? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw my hand up too. Right. You've just been caught red-handed. Right? You remember the look on your face or how you felt in that moment? Right? Did your mama ever walk in on you when you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing? Right? Maybe you had your hand in the cookie jar. Whatever it was in that moment, you get this moment of fear because you know you've been caught doing something wrong. Right? So, so he's particularly talking about the hope in Christ's return and specifically using the language that we remain pure because he is pure. Because how many of you want to be caught living in habitual sin or doing something wrong when Jesus busts the sky wide open? No, I don't want to be caught doing any. I want to be on my best behavior when Christ comes back. How many of you want to be bickering and fighting and being nasty to somebody when Jesus returns? Right? So we remain pure and we remain uh, in our hope of Christ's return. We remain as pure as we possibly can. That means we remain in relationship with him because, because he is holy, then we can be holy. Right, it's in our relationship with Christ. So let's talk a little bit about uh, sin and the child of God, which he gets into in verses 4 through 9. 
uh, which we've already read. So John starts digging into sin a little more specific, but he talks about specifically these three ideas. Number one is that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Number two, Jesus took away our sin, and in him was found no sin. Right? So Jesus took away our sin, and in him was found no sin, that he was the spotless lamb, that he went to the cross having never sinned so that he could uh, take away our sin, and he took away the sins of the world, right? So, so that's the second one. The third one is this, that whoever abides in Jesus doesn't sin. What? What just happened there? Whoever abides, whoever Abides in Jesus doesn't what? Oh, man, we're all in trouble. So these are the, the moments when we're reading the Bible, when we run across a verse like this, that we need to understand context. We need to read in context the chapter and in context the book and in context the word of God. Right. So we know that in, in chapter one, uh, matter of fact, in verse 110 uh, in first John, it says, if we never sin, we make if we say we never sin, we make God out to be a liar. Because God said we all sin. So what is he talking about that whoever abides in Jesus doesn't sin? How does he contradict himself from what he said in the first ch chapter to the third chapter when he comes in and says, if you're in Christ, you don't sin. In the first chapter, he says, but if you say I won't, I don't ever sin, then you make God out to be a liar feeling kind of torn in between, right? Well, it, he's not specifically speaking about those who are in Christ never sin, but what he's speaking about is that those who are in Christ shouldn't be characterized by their sin. You shouldn't be known by your sin if you belong to Jesus. There shouldn't be sin that is so prominent in your life that people know you by your sin. If you're if you're his. Right. So so it's not that Christians never sin, but that Christians are never uh, characterized by sin. So a lot of times there's there's a couple of different types of people. There are people who uh, live on this world and this earth trying everything they can to be perfect and feel like an absolute failure every time they fail. Right. It depends on how you were raised. It depends on your perspective of, of how you were raised, usually, or your, your family of origin and how they taught you and how they talked to you during the, the season of growing up and the things that you've learned, maybe even the church that you attended. Uh, but you believe that if you ever fail, then you're just a failure. Right. And, and you believe that. So there's people who believe that if they ever fail, they're a failure. And there's scripture in this epistle that, that says that that's wrong. Right, says so if you fail, uh, you get to go to God, ask for forgiveness, repent, be forgiven, and be a child of God, and be loved, and 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 be forgiven for what went wrong. Right, and then there's people who are licensed, right, who have a license to sin because they've sinned once and nothing really that bad happened to them, and so they went back to it again and drank from the same trough, and then nothing really bad happened to them again. And you ask, well, how in the world do these uh, ministers of the gospel and preachers and pastors who fall and fail uh, because of moral failure, how do they get into that position to where sexual sin and all this kind of stuff creeps into their life? And, and my goodness, they're a pastor. It's because it happened once. They left the door open for it. It happened once. And my gosh, they still preached pretty good that Sunday. And they say, well, if it happened once and I still preached pretty good, and it happened again. And, well, you know, the anointing was still on me this Sunday. And then it happened again. And then, you know, I still preached pretty well 
this Sunday. And eventually they get to a place where they're so in-depth in sin and they're living in sin that they don't realize it when the anointing has left them. And they don't even notice it when the anointing has left their life. And then they're leading out of charisma instead of leading out of anointing. Right? So the, but that's not just for pastors. That's for Christians in general. You don't recognize it and don't realize it until you're too far in. So don't ever let your sin get to a place where it characterizes you, but continually repent, which is a, which is a, a complete turning away from the sin that, is, that has attacked you, right? Continue to, to repent and turn away. So, so characterize means this, guys. Don't let your sin characterize you. Characterize means this. Be a part of one's identifying traits of his or her character. Don't let something in your life that's, that's not biblical, that's anti-God, that's lawlessness, uh, characterize your traits of who you are. You know, make sure that you begin to deal with that. Let God deal with that. Repent and turn from that and don't return to the sin in your life. And you say, well, Pastor Steve, you're talking to a bunch of Wednesday night people right now, right? Isn't that, wouldn't that be something that you would teach on Sunday morning to the less saved people, right? No, man, we all deal with stuff. And, and your sin might not be buying crack from Bubba behind the movie theater and smoking it up. But your sin might be lying. Your sin uh, might be worry. You might let worry overtake you so much that you just keep returning to that. And that's your source of comfort rather than Jesus. Right? It, it could be lots of things in our life. But we as Christians, as we learned last week, if you say, I never sin, you make out God to be a liar. Right? So you got to understand that there's sin in all of us that we need to deal with on occasion. But what we can't have is a willful sin as a lifestyle choice, which is a constant act in our life and not just a momentary failure. So we all have momentary failures and we need to repent and get it covered under blood and ask Jesus for forgiveness and come back into right standing with the Father. Right? We all have momentary failures. What we can't have is a willful sin as a lifestyle choice in our life. So let's pick back up in, in verse 10. If you've still got your word open, we're going to jump in on verse 10 and read through 15. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil, there he goes again. There's children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Uh, somebody needs to underline that. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Uh, John's gotten pretty harsh, right? He's telling it like it is. You say, well, Pastor Steve, this is a pretty rough sermon. God preached it. I didn't. I'm just verse by verse going through what the word says, man, right? This is, this is the word of God. So we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, right? So John begins to move into love as a trait of a Christian. In the beginning, he talks about the test of love, right, to know your Christianity, but he begins to move into love as a trait 
of a Christian. Uh, how many of you know that love is not a byproduct of being a Christian? Right? It's not saying I'm a Christian, but some days I'll love and, and some weeks I won't. I'm a Christian. I'm going to love people sometime. And then, uh, you know, I'm going to take July off and just be mean to everybody. Right? It's not a byproduct of being a Christian. It's not something, oh, I'll try it. You know, if it doesn't really work for me, it's okay. Right? Love is not a byproduct of being a Christian, but it's just as much a characteristic of being a Christian as not living in willful sin. John puts it on the same level. Right? That evidence of your Christianity is that you love the brethren. Right? He puts it on the same level. You have the evidence of your Christianity is that you're not living in willful uh, sin. You haven't turned your back on God. Right? But also, love in your life, your fellow brethren, uh, is evidence of your salvation. It's evidence that you've been brought to life from death. Right? Is love. So love can't be a byproduct of our Christian walk, but love has the main tenet of our Christian walk. Amen? Some of y'all are getting awful quiet. Some of y'all are like, man, I got to love Sally at work tomorrow, and I don't want to because Sally is mean. I'm stepping on a few toes tonight, and that's all right, right? So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, so John never teaches long without hitting the subject of love, does he? He never teaches long without getting back to love. So, so love is the evidence of our salvation. Here's the outworking of love. 1 John 3, starting in verse 16, it reads like this. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children. He comes back in. Remember, this is the, the voice of a father. The voice of a father teaching the church. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Amen. How many of you are happy and glad that God is greater than your heart, right? He's greater than the deeds that are found in your heart. He's greater than the actions that you desire in your heart. He's greater than, than everything that you face within your heart because the heart is deceitfully, right, above all things. So, so he is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do these things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So as he's bringing in the sacrifice of Christ towards the end of this chapter, he's bringing in the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is both proof and standard. And what do I mean by that? The sacrifice of Christ is proof of his love for us. Because Jesus died on a cross. Because Jesus took every lash, dropped every, every drop of blood. Because Jesus went and took the punishment on our behalf. It's proof of his love for us. Now, here's where it gets tricky. 
That, most of us as Christ followers, we understand that and we receive that and we're grateful for that. Here's where it gets tricky. The sacrifice of Christ is not just the proof of his love for us, but it's the standard by which we love. What? Whew. That's the standard by which we wish to obtain love of our brethren. That Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death is the standard by which we're supposed to sacrifice for other people. So love is demonstrated in our daily walk by doing these things. Helping those in need. Demonstrating compassion. Loving with more than the words of our mouth. Putting love into action. Helping brothers and sisters in need. And sharing Christ with the lost. Telling people about Jesus. That is putting love into action. But what if, can I, can I use you for a moment? So there's, a, there's a, a, a thing today in ministry that people talk about, and it's called compassion fatigue. That you can be uh, doing the work of the ministry and being uh, so compassionate about a people that eventually you lose every ounce of strength within you to be compassionate for the next person. Right. Jessica and I were, were talking this morning and we, we often do in the mornings. Uh, she sits at the front table and does her Bible study and I kind of walk around the house and I'm listening to podcasts and cooking breakfast and and interrupting her on occasion. And uh, <laughs> I'll pop in and, and be like, baby, I, I, let me tell you this, you know, and but I'm not the only one who does it. She does it to me, too, because I'll have to always mute my headphones and be like, yes, darling. Yes. You know, uh, but but this morning, I don't remember who interrupted who, but I think it was her. And we, we sat at the table. Was it me? You sure? She always has a better memory than me, but it always goes against me. I don't know what that is. So, so she sat at the table, and, and she called me over. Or, okay, I sat down with her, and I started talking to her about a, a, a biblical concept uh, dealing with compassion. And she looked at me, and she goes, but it's so hard to always be compassionate. And it's so hard to just continue having compassion after compassion after compassion. And when you, when you do the work of the ministry, and, and believe me, I understand when I'm talking about that, that every Christ follower is called to do the work of the ministry, right? But as we do the work of the ministry and we love people, and, and that's a standard by which we, uh, we deal with people is through love, that that's the standard that Jesus set, then uh, compassion is what we're supposed to have for people's hearts. So what do you do if you, if you have no compassion left? What do you do if you wake up one morning and you've been doing so much for other people? Maybe you're a caregiver. Maybe you're, 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 you're serving in other areas or, or in your work is service related and you're doing so much stuff for other people that you wake up in the morning and your heart is just hard and you don't want to hear another sob story and you don't want to uh, have to listen to another situation and you don't want to take another phone call or listen or read another text. What do you do? Well, John says that when your heart fails, understand that God is bigger than your heart. Amen. You got anything you want to add to that? Okay. So, I just brought her up as an example. That's all. Let that be an example to you. No, I'm just kidding. 
So, so he says that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. You know, that in those moments when you feel that lack of compassion for people and you know that in order for me to continue being the Christian that I'm called to be, I have to dig deep and I have to find some compassion in myself. Understand that it doesn't all fall on you and your efforts. That all you have to do is ask the Holy Spirit for rejuvenation of compassion in your heart and he will give you everything that you need to do. Listen, some counseling days for me, and, and most of my pastoral counseling tends to be marriage-related. It just, it just does. And it's a, it's a tendency of our, of our first calling to marriage ministry, and it just always seems to be that way. And some days, some days I'll have five, six, seven appointments on a counseling day. And sometimes by the fifth appointment, I will be dry as a bone drained, tired, grumpy. You, you wouldn't believe your pastor gets grumpy. Your old pastor never got grumpy, but your new pastor, man, he gets grumpy. <laughs> pastor Russian never got grumpy. I never saw that man grumpy a day in my life. I bet his wife has. <laughs> but man, you get grumpy and drained, and I've got I've to get in a corner somewhere before I put myself in front of anybody else. Before I answer one more text out of the 350 texts I got that day. Before I answer one more email. Before I take one more phone call. I've just got to get in a corner and get on my knees and ask God to replenish in me what's missing so that I can serve the next person with compassion and love. Right? And that's all of us. In our daily life, man, if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you know that you're going to be diffusing something else at work instead of love, you're not going to be God's oil diffuser diffusing uh, his righteousness that day. You're going to be diffusing some nastiness, right? Then you need to get alone somewhere, in a closet, in a corner, in your car seat, wherever, and just begin to ask God to come in and replenish and restore in you what's missing so that you can be who you need to be that day. Right? So that we can do what God has asked us to do. So, so these are our standards. That even if you're struggling in compassion, God has you covered. God has you taken care of. Amen? So, so listen, uh, as he talks about this, he finishes up in 19 through 24 that we just read, and we're, we're wrapping up. Uh, to, to don't walk in condemnation because of this teaching, but walk in understanding that God is greater than any failure that you have. Don't walk in condemnation because of this book of the Bible calling you to purity and calling you to righteousness and calling you to dispose of sin in your life. Uh, but walk in understanding of how much greater God is than your failures. And that even when you fail in love, when you fail in compassion, even when you fail in sin, he's greater than all of that. And all you have to do is take it to him. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to wrap up tonight by just kind of covering where we've been so far. So in the first couple of chapters, we talked about the three tests of being a Christian. That's the test of obedience, the test of belief, and the test of love. And then chapter three went on from the tests of a Christian to the characteristics of a Christian that we should be displaying. And that's no willful sin in your life, no sin that you've allowed to take over your life, that you have an outward showing of love and compassion, and that you trust God to help you when you fall way short. Because let me guarantee you, I'm going to get up here so everybody sees me. 
even the guys in the media booth. You will fall short. There will be days that you don't have it together. There will be times that you don't feel like you can take another breath. There will be moments that you just want to scream, Calgon, take me away. There will be moments you want to show up at Walmart like half of those other crazy people come dressed. You just want to walk through with whatever you woke up in and not even take a shower. There's always going to be those times. But under, don't brush their teeth or nothing, she said. <laughs> Whoo, smelling funky. There's always going to be those times. But you can always, always trust God to pick up your slack. And you can always go to him and ask him when you need help. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me tonight and let's close in prayer. I want to remind you, next week, Dr. Tim Hines with a, a very special uh, message for the church. In, invite some people. Uh, come out and, and be a part of that and make sure you invite somebody, corner somebody on Sunday. I don't always do this on Wednesday night, but I want to ask, is there, is there anybody in this room tonight that you, you've come and it's a, it's a Wednesday night and Wednesday night's our Bible study night but you find yourself here and you just haven't made a decision for Christ but tonight listening to the teaching listening to the music uh, feeling the tug of, of the Lord in this place and you recognize and realize that you need to call out to him and make him your savior tonight if you're in this place and, and you'd like to do that we'd like to pray with you through that would you just lift a hand? You know, it's a moment of courageousness to do that, but it's also a moment of surrender. It's a moment of surrender to God, like, I need you in my life. I can't do this on my own. And if that's you, just, just lift a hand tonight and let us pray for you and pray for you for salvation tonight. Anybody at all? Okay, I'm going to trust that everybody in here is made Jesus their Lord and Savior, but I want to give that opportunity. Let me pray over us. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and learn from your word and study your word together and just devour your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to put it into action in our lives. Help us to not hear the word and just walk away and forget it, but help us to be doers of the word. Help us to have the characteristics of a Christian. Help us to put any willful sin that's in our lives away and away for good. Help us to seek your face, Lord. Help us to show love and compassion, Father. Refill our hearts. Father, as I look around this room, there's a lot of people who do ministry for a living and I pray Father that you would refill their hearts Father that when they wake up tomorrow morning they would have a fresh anointing to do what they do those people in here who serve and, and that's their job is service related that when they wake up tomorrow they would have a fresh anointing to do what they do those in this room or are watching online who are caretakers Lord and they caretake people that they love but it's draining them 
I pray, Lord, that when they wake up tomorrow, they would have a fresh infilling and a fresh understanding and a fresh anointing of the, of the Christ that they're being to the person that they're serving. Father, that you would fill them up. You see our failures, Lord, but you love us. Father, forgive us for our sins. Father, make us whole tonight. Help us to gain more understanding of you, to be in deeper relationship with you. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. Church, God bless you. Can you give the Lord a hand clap of praise before we go?